Hi there, I'm David Culver, Vice President of US Government Relations at Canopy Growth, once again joining you from Washington, DC. Welcome back to this episode of Under the Canopy. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Senior Washington Correspondent for Politico and co-author of Politico Playbook, Anna Palmer. Anna is no stranger to the world of Congress and politics in Washington, having chronicled the business of Washington insiders for years. Prior to her work as a Senior Correspondent on Playbook, Anna co-authored Politico's daily newsletter, Politico Influence. Before working at Politico, she covered House leadership and lobbying as a staff writer for Roll Call. She is also the co-author of the New York Times national bestseller, The Hill to Die On, The Battle of Congress and the Future of Trump's America, which was published in 2019. It's an excellent read and I encourage you to take a look. I hope you enjoy our insightful discussion today. Thank you again for joining us under the canopy. Okay, Anna Palmer from Politico. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Under the Canopy. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So uh, a wild week, obviously, with the election on Tuesday. Uh, how are you doing? Have you gotten any sleep? How are you feeling? I definitely, I can't believe it was just two days ago. It feels like a month ago when actually uh, election day was happening. But um, I'm feeling good. I feel like it's been a slog, but, you know, we kind of, predicted that there was, you know, if there wasn't going to be a wave, it was going to be this kind of slow, methodical process. Right. So we still don't know uh, exactly who the president is going to be. Four states, I think, that everybody is watching at the moment. Can you just kind of talk through where we are at this moment uh, regarding the presidential? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously things are in flux, but I do think the Biden campaign believes they will have won the presidency by the end of today. Uh, they believe they could win with more than 300 electoral votes, which would be a very significant win. Um, you know, I think they're putting a little caution to some of these states, particularly Nevada, one of the states that is kind of ping-ponging with the votes as they come in, um, you know, in terms of how much Biden leads by right as of right now, uh, it jumped to about 12,000, but earlier today it was, you know, less than that. So I just think one of the things that we try to talk a lot about is, you know, the numbers are going to fluctuate. It does appear that uh, Joe Biden is going to win. He's ahead in Pennsylvania. Um, the president would really have to run the table at this point to be in a position to get to 270. You really see them on their back of their heels um, in just in terms of the rhetoric, in terms of the fact that they're just going to try to do every recount, every lawsuit, anything they can to try to slow this down. Right. Uh, can you talk also a little bit, uh, there's been a lot of chatter the last couple of days about legal challenges and potentially this going all the way to the Supreme Court. What can you tell our audience about those challenges from, in layman's terms, of course, uh, and, and how that could potentially play out? And, and will this get to the Supreme Court? Right. Yeah, it, it's complicated, right? Because I think you have a lot of messaging from the president's camp, you know, Rudy Giuliani and others saying we're going to have a, a national lawsuit. That's not how this works. So I think as much as people are saying every vote should be counted, 
every person, every each of these camps should have the ability to have their legal recourse. This is, happens every single election. It shouldn't be necessarily that surprising. But basically, on a state-by-state -state basis, you're going to see some challenges. The Trump campaign in Pennsylvania, in particular, has had some areas of disagreement with how and where their poll watchers. So basically, as these absentee ballots get counted, where they can be viewing them, making sure that they are accurate, that they're doing the job that they should be doing. They did have a win earlier today where you know their poll watcher is now going to, I think, be able to be six feet from where some of these most recent um, you know, these ballots are being counted. But there's some of these that are several. There's that kind of lane in Pennsylvania. Then in, in uh, Wisconsin, you have the concept of they want to have a recount. Um, you know, Biden is win winning by 20,000 votes at this point. It's hard to see that uh, Trump, the Trump campaign would be able to make up the difference there. In the last couple of recounts in Wisconsin, I think it's been 100 and maybe 300 votes that actually flipped. So, uh, but they're gonna take each of these steps. And I think we all just have to, you know, unfortunately be patient and uh, try to just kind of take a pause until we get the final results. Yeah, I think your point about the 20,000 vote differential in Wisconsin is really important one because we're not talking about a few hundred votes here. I mean, this is significant enough that uh, I don't see them going through a recount process at all. And, and quite frankly, I believe that number is about what Donald Trump won with uh, in 2016. So, okay, good points there. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, mail-in ballots because that that to me has, has really been, I think, one of the most important themes of this election. Um, talk to us a little bit about why they're so important and uh, how they're like, basically, are, are they going, um, are they benefiting one candidate or another? What's the whole dynamic there? Yes, yeah, so this is a very different election. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so there was a real effort at a, in a, several states to do mail-in balloting so that people wouldn't have to expose themselves to potentially the coronavirus by standing in line and waiting. So a lot of voters afforded themselves of this opportunity. Some states, DC where I live, mailed every single voter an actual ballot to make it easier. So I think that's the first point. We're in a pandemic, this is different than normal. Secondly, Democrats really pushed for months you should be using, availing yourself of the mail-in opportunity if you can. And so what we're seeing in states like Nevada, in Arizona, certainly in Georgia now, uh, as these votes are being counted, that in a lot of these urban areas, there was an effort to really drive up the number of Democrats who are using mail-in voting. And so that's why we're seeing this big difference between the Republicans who showed up to the polls and the Democrats who early voted. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's let's talk about the polling, uh, which has also been something that I've been fascinated by. I went back and uh, I looked at my memo um, that I wrote about a week before the election, kind of giving my analysis for the presidential uh, Senate races and also the House races. And uh, the polling was off again. There's some some areas where it's actually been very accurate, but for the most part, I think it's fair to say it's been generally off. And I also... Um, think that there's been uh, some discussion too in the last few days about the media's coverage of this, about this potential for a Dem sweep. So talk to me about the polling, talk to me about the media perspective. Uh, you're a, a very prominent inside the Beltway media personality. Tell us you know, what your opinion is about the coverage prior to the election. Let's take these in two parts. So I would say, first of all, with regards to the polling, um, clearly it was abysmal 
it was broken. It wasn't just the public polling that media outfits were doing, but it was the private polling that both parties had. I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that we rely on as the media is these, uh, these polls to kind of have a sense of where things are. And this race in most of these polls had been very stagnant. There had been not a lot of fluctuation over the past six to nine months. Everyone really kind of felt like, okay, this, these, these polls, all of them are basically the same. And all these pollsters said, you know what, 2016, we did get the popular vote within the margin of error, but we've weighted things differently. We're going to be much more accurate this time. I think the polling industry needs to have a clear reckoning in terms of what they're doing, the challenges they're facing with fewer people having hard lines, fewer people, who are the people that are actually answering these polls. Um, and so I think that is going to be the, the autopsy that needs to take place after this um, kind of this election actually is finished. As far as the media, you know, I think the media did a lot of things this time that better than they did in 2016. I think there was a lot more reporters who were on the ground. I think the pandemic made it extremely difficult though to get those in-person kind of anecdotal senses at events and just kind of in cities to know where people were at. I think that was one of the huge, huge challenges for the media. I do think we rely on polls. We rely on folks that are, you know, kind of measuring these in focus groups and different things. And the polls just, you know, what happened at the polls did not happen uh, at the vote at the voter ballot box. So I, I think we do the best we can with the information that we have. All right. Let me let me dive a bit deeper, though, into the uh, Senate races that, that I, I was watching very closely. Um, I'm not so surprised by the House simply because I feel like 2018, the Democrats picked up at least 10 seats that they had no business winning. So the House doesn't surprise me as much as I think it does some of my colleagues. What the Senate does, and there were some races that I felt for sure were going to sway towards the Democrats that just immediately reversed course, like within the last 24 hours. So what, what's your take on the Senate? Um, how, how did that how did we end up where we are right now? I know we still have four um, that are uh, to be settled, um, but what's your comment about the, the Senate? I think I would say a couple of things. One, I think when you look at the Senate map and then talking to a bunch of operatives, usually a lot of people thought this might be a wave election. And so when it's a wave election, usually about 70% of those seats go in the direction of the, who wins at the top of the ticket. This isn't, wasn't a way of election in, in, I mean, I think Joe Biden may get very high, you know, numbers in terms of the electoral college, but it's not, he's winning these, these states in a very kind of small numbers. It's not like he's doing blowing Donald Trump out in a lot of these states that he may actually end up winning. So I think that's the first point to underscore. I think the second is we're seeing a lot of ticket splitting potentially. That's something that we're gonna be an analyzing in the coming days where potentially people were turned off by the president willing to vote for Joe Biden but unwilling to give Democrats an all Democratic Washington. And so I think there still is this sense that a lot of voters like divided government. They want things to be, you know, plot along at a more methodical rate rather than swinging back and forth with wide disparities in terms of the policies that are going to happen in Washington. All right. So let me turn to the presidential campaigns. I, I know that you have been in touch with them, obviously, throughout this entire campaign season. Um, is this what they expected? We're, we're sitting here Thursday at one o'clock. We still don't have an answer yet. Uh, is this what the Republicans and the Democratic campaign staff anticipated? I, 
will say Jan O'Malley Dillon, who's a campaign manager for Joe Biden, for the last couple of weeks before the election on Twitter and in a lot of places, we did an interview with her, really cautioned Democrats who were getting ahead of themselves, kind of almost this like um, emotional momentum that they, you know, wasn't maybe based on the actual data. She said that it was going to be a much tighter race than a lot of people on Twitter were talking about. And she's been proven to be correct. So I, I think she was very cautious going in to say, Democrats, don't get ahead of yourselves. I think on the Republican side, they have projected from the Trump camp publicly that they were going to have a landslide. I think privately, if you talk to them, most felt like they believe the polling that we all saw too, that this was going to be a really tough um, road for the president to try to basically hit that moonshot twice in a row. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, um, well, so we know what we know as of Thursday afternoon, and let's assume that uh, we end up with a, a Biden as Biden-Harris uh, in the White House. Let's assume that um, Leader McConnell keeps control in the Senate um, with relatively similar margins uh, that he had the last cycle, and that the House remains relatively the same, although the Dems may be down four or five votes or four or five seats by the end of it. So if that dynamic is um, how things end up uh, in the next few days. Talk to me a little bit about what you expect Congress to do, if anything, uh, during the lame duck period, and also any ideas that you have about the new Congress. So 2021, what, what could that look like? Um, and uh, feel free to comment also on the White House in that first 100 days. Yeah, so I would say I'll take the lame duck first, which um, is going to be key. I think Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell really laid out some criteria regarding COVID relief yesterday saying that he wants it to happen before the end of the year. That's the most positive he's been on a COVID relief package uh, in, in months. And so I think you clearly have Speaker Nancy Pelosi who has wanted to try to do a deal. If it is a divided government in terms of 2021, it doesn't get her a lot to wait until January of next year. I think there will be pressure among Democrats to try to do something. So I do think you could get something on the COVID relief side of things. I don't anticipate that if Donald Trump is on his way out that he's gonna be looking to do a lot of legislative action and there's gonna be a, a lot of deals to be done. Taking that a step forward to the new Congress, it is gonna be fascinating. I can't wait just as somebody who's covered Congress for a really long time, you're gonna have Speaker Pelosi with a very slim majority in the House. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the Senate. I think most people think that it's going to be a Republican Senate, but we could be looking at two runoffs in Georgia that couldn't be decided until the beginning of the next year. So again, it's going to be very slim margins for both um, the McConnell and Schumer. I think when you look at this White House, Joe Biden has made a lot of comments about how he wants to get back to bipartisanship, wants to do deals that you know can kind of bring the country back together. We will see if that is possible where the politics lie right now. I do think infrastructure is something that you've heard a lot of Democrats and Republicans want. I, I think you'll have probably another COVID relief package and I would look, this is very wonky, but I feel like you'll appreciate it uh, in the Senate in particular, there's gonna be probably two slices of the apple of reconciliation. And so that has a lot to do with taxes and, and things that are germane to the budget. But those would be two opportunities where you could see some movement of only needing 51 votes, for example, instead of the 60 votes to pass something. Wow, okay, great insight. Um, and I, I love the reconciliation comment, excellent. Uh, <laughs> 
a lot of my friends are, are asking me also is just about the dynamics between uh, Biden and McConnell and how that relationship is going to look next year. So I think that's something that uh, I'm going to be watching very closely. I know that they have in the past had had good working relationship. We'll obviously have to wait and see uh, how that plays out for next year, uh, especially as they tackle um, the pandemic. So let's turn to cannabis, um, Anna, because I think the headline in my mind, if Biden ends up winning this thing, is that the big winner was Joe Biden and cannabis. Uh, there were five ballot initiatives uh, across the country and each one of them was successful. And they were successful in states like Mississippi and South Dakota, which are very, very conservative uh, and high population states like New Jersey, uh, which I think will potentially lead other states to follow suit uh, to capture the jobs and the, the tax revenue there. But talk to me a little bit about um, cannabis uh, on Capitol Hill and, um, any thoughts you may have for the lame duck or for next year? Yeah, clearly cannabis is becoming normalized around the country as in towards legalization. I think we've seen it in a, a smattering of states and a lot of different ballot initiatives. And oftentimes these things bubble up, right? You, you see it at the state level and sometimes it you know takes a little bit to get the positive momentum that you have had this cycle to go to the federal level. Clearly, I think a couple things are at play. I think there is a generational thing happening. You're going to have a lot of new members who are much younger uh, that are coming in. And I think when you look at just the generational uh, support for legalization and, and different things like that, uh, there's just clearly a lot of momentum there. I think the second thing, when you look at the um, real deficits that a lot of these states and cities are facing regarding trying to balance budgets. I think there will be pressure to find new pockets of money. Uh, and clearly this is an area where you could see taxation and just normalization that could really add to the bottom line. We've seen that in Colorado and other states. And so I think that will be one of the issues that could be something that both Republicans and Democrats are going to have to find some money to help these states with relief. Um, and secondly, I mean, I think the other or third thing I would just say is I, I do think you are going to see new members with some of these states. You mentioned South Dakota, Mississippi, where, you know, when these things legalize at the state level, oftentimes members have to rethink or recalibrate to where their politics might be. So there's certainly potential inroads there. Okay, well, Anna Palmer, thank you so much uh, for being with us on Under the Canopy. We're really grateful to you. Uh, thanks for all the great work you do. Uh, I read your reports every day and uh, really grateful for you uh, spending the time with us. So thank you so much. Thanks so much. Be well. You too.